this podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello, everybody. My name is Joe Briley. Welcome to the Great Ormond Street Bioethics Podcast. I'm delighted our guest this time is Dr. Joe Laddie. She is a children's palliative care consultant from the Evelina Children's Hospital in London and also chairs the Guys and St. Thomas's Ethics Committee. We'll discuss with Joe some of the differences in terms of looking after ethical issues in a huge hospital with some of the complex issues recently with adult patients, and then move on to think through some of the issues with ethical conundrums in children's palliative care. Children's palliative care is a rapidly increasing speciality in the UK, hugely underfunded, but does a huge amount of work for children in very difficult and challenging situations, together with their families, trying to determine the best way forward for children who many will be under a palliative care team for decades and will even survive into adulthood, um, and to think through how to provide the best care together with other clinicians. Joe, welcome. Thank you, Jay. So please tell us about yourself and how you got interested in ethics. As you said, I'm a paediatric palliative care consultant. And in fact, I started off originally training in paediatric oncology and then sidestepped into paediatric palliative care. And I've always wanted to do medicine, but I come from a family with quite a strong legal background. And I was brought up with lots of legal debate around the dinner table. And I guess I always had one ear to the legal discussions and one ear to the kind of my medical training. And as as I've progressed through paediatric palliative care, I've I've witnessed and been part of many ethical debates and challenges. And I'd say, in fact, that's a significant amount of the work that, that we do is, is trying to find our way with families through the ethical dilemmas that they face. And so it's something that I just felt that I needed to explore more and more. So I, I did a a diploma in ethics a few years back. And when I joined Guys and St. Thomas's eight years ago, I joined the ethics committee then and have been a member of it for the full eight years that I've been at the trust. And when the old chairperson left, I took over three years ago and have been chairing ever since. Excellent. Thanks, Joe. I mean, it doesn't quite work because I, I discussed football around the dinner table at home and <laughs> never got to play in the Premier League. So uh, I feel a bit cheated. But <laughs> moving on. What was it like as a paediatrician chairing this I mean, massive, complex healthcare institution that's Guy's and St. Thomas's and all the other associated areas? What's it like being a paediatrician chairing that sort of setups, ethical um, support group? I think I'm actually incredibly lucky. For, for a lot of paediatricians, they work in a very paediatric-based world, either in children's hospitals or they tend to, whilst working on children's wards, even if within a district general hospital, be fairly separate to the wonderful world of adult medicine. And actually, I'm really lucky that I get to to meet colleagues from across all the disciplines that Guys and St. Thomas's have. And so I, I hear a very diverse range of ethical cases that are brought to the trust. I meet new people on a, a kind of weekly basis. And it, it, it's been really fascinating, particularly through COVID-19, because I mean, luckily, um, paediatrics has been relatively unscathed by COVID in the in the context of what the adults have gone through but through the ethics committee we've been part of that journey and hopefully been able to support some of our colleagues within adult services so I see it as a, a real bonus and I also think that it's great from from our our committee itself that that we have 
pediatricians, we have adult physicians, we have a, a variety of allied health care professionals and lay people, legal representatives within our group. And so actually there's a, a really good mixture of people and skill sets and, and it's not kind of just pigeonholed to one or the other. Thanks, Joe. I guess that moves me. Uh, I'm going to go to the question after the one I was going to ask you because it flows very nicely. What main moral issues have you seen during COVID-19 kind of in your entire roles in the hospital, on the ethics team, but also, I guess, in society more broadly? Lots. So I think in the hospital, um, certainly at the beginning, when we stepped up our ethics committee to a 24-7 service to be able to support our colleagues. And I think the, the initial referrals were often about... Uh, withholding and withdrawing life-sustaining treatment. But actually, as the pandemic has progressed, we've seen a a wide variety of things uh, presenting. So there's been cases regarding vaccination and some of the kind of the regulations around vaccination. Um, There's been cases about the use of scarce products, for instance, blood products. So we've seen an awful lot. We've on a practical basis, particularly within the children's hospital, but also affecting the adults. Um, Lots of discussion, not only for the ethics committee, but actually generally amongst clinicians about the impact of visiting policies and the moral distress that that's caused. And not only the moral distress that the visiting policies have caused, but also the practical impact of how we care for our patients, how we communicate with them, the impacts on the families in paediatrics, when you've got parents having to potentially decide who does and doesn't stay with a very sick child and who then stays at home with other children. And that has a massive knock-on effect. And that also affects the staff because there's lots of frustration amongst parents um, and frustration amongst the adult population who who want to visit as well. And then I think the other the, the other issues have been about the impact again on teams of not being face to face with each other, not being able to work in the same environment, not being able to check in with each other and have our casual debriefs that I think all healthcare professionals will have with one another on a day to day basis. And you you've sort of lost that by people being restricted as to how many people can be in a room, how many people are allowed in the offices each day. And then I guess one of the, the other things that we've we've noticed, obviously, is the difficulty in communication, the challenges of wearing PPE and not necessarily feeling able to talk to families and support them in the way that we are used to doing. So having the right people in the rooms at the right time, being able to potentially hold someone's hand or give them a hug when they are distressed and the barriers that all the physical PPE are presenting us. Brilliant. Yeah, I, I completely echo what you've said. I mean, it's been an astonishing experience. I am. Um, I think the most challenging ethics meeting we had in the last year, I mean, there's lots of ones about um, innovative treatments and, you know, uh, what to do in individual cases. But the toughest one was about the restrictions on visiting. It, it's one of these things that goes straight to the heart of being a children's hospital, isn't it? That you, you naturally have people in with the very sick child by the bedside, which, again, has been a journey. It wasn't always the case that parents had uh, open access to come in to be with their sick children. It's a, a huge improvement. But to suddenly have that taken away, I, I wonder whether the other reason that it was tougher in the second wave is maybe the acceptance, the passive acceptance that restrictions are just there, they have to be there, went away a little, I wonder. I mean, I think I felt that personally that, you know, there was a lot of kind of immediacy with the first wave and the death figures were alarming and people saw the need to have restrictions. But then there was a lot more pushback later on, although the facts might not have changed so much. So I I do wonder whether that's a little bit of the issue here as well. But what do you think? I think so. But I think that the other part of it is that for a lot of the children that we look after, they are long stay 
patients and they are often in for many months a, a lot of the Absolutely. the newborns and um, the prem babies who who may progress from the neonatal intensive care into the pediatric intensive care are in the hospital for months and months and months and actually the impact on families of of not being able to share very simple very everyday um events in their children's lives first baths first smiles first um episode of sitting up independently and not being able to share that with one another is it's something that i think we all take for granted and and it's been the real dilemma that from the healthcare professionals absolutely are trying to maintain the safety within the hospital setting and we see that across all the hospitals that, that we work alongside um and but equally understand the immense frustration of the families uh, and the challenges that they face. And I mean, from a palliative care point of view, with my palliative care hat on, mm. I've had to be part of end of life conversations with parents where, or, or advanced care conversations with one parent is in the room with me, but the other parent is at home and therefore mm. is being linked in. And whilst, of course, we hope that we can communicate things and that they understand what we're saying. What is noticeable is that they're not there to hold each other's hands, and that makes a massive difference. So people are facing these challenges, and and we can't begin to understand what the impact that has on them. I mean, it's it's just mind-blowing, yeah, to be honest. Absolutely agree, and I think we'll... We'll start to learn these stories in the next few months, I guess. But you're you're absolutely right. The striking thing and the burden, I mean, the burden on staff has been very high, but the burden on the parents of the children in the hospital and the children themselves in terms of the lack of more support structures is, is just astonishing. But I, I guess I was going to start asking about um, the ethical issues you've seen in your palliative care career. And um, what are the main ones? Uh, what, what kind of has caused you the most... Uh, and if moral distress is the right term, moral injury, you've just found most challenging. Um, and, and what do you think may be the biggest problems we're going to store up after the pandemic in the palliative care area? That's a lot of questions, Joe. Take is, them as you like. I mean, I think the obvious thing that we we deal with is is the ethics around withholding and withdrawing life-sustaining treatment. Um, and, and some of that is you know, as an impact of high profile cases. And some of that is just what we see and what we what we deal with and the challenges faced by families um, when they have a child who is in extremists and potentially approaching the end of their life or where the limits of modern medicine um, have been reached. So I think that's that's historically been a lot of what we've had to contend with. I think it is evolving um, what we deal with. I think... We're, we're seeing, because of increasing technologies, things like um, total parental nutrition and the use of um, permanent lines, so IV lines like Hickman lines, mm. um, are beginning to become more problematic, I think, with the group of children that we look after and raise yeah. issues about how far we push different treatments. Um, the use of long-term IVs in the community and and what you require from a support package to put that in place. We're definitely seeing, obviously, much more with regards to long-term ventilation. And I think one of the things that we haven't really talked about a lot historically, or we may, we may have talked about it within the medical world, but I don't think it's been discussed in a, on a national context, is is the kind of the resources that we have available. So while some of these 
procedures, some of the equipment, some of the advances are there and available from a practical perspective. We don't necessarily have the volume of them to provide all the children who might need them or might potentially benefit from them. Um, and we certainly don't have the the pool of staff to support their use in the community. And that is something that I think has started to be discussed in the context of COVID when we realised that actually we may well run out of ITU beds or we might run out of ECMO facilities. It suddenly became more evident in the public eye that actually we don't have a bottomless pit of money that we can support every single treatment that's been invented. Um, and so I think that's that's probably going to be a bigger issue in the future is, is how far we push treatments because they are available. Does that mean that they're the right thing for children? And, and equally, can we support all the different children we look after with all the different advances that, that science has, has come up with? So I think they're probably the two biggest challenges. I, I think there's, there's something you said there that's really striking and important, and that's about um, public understanding of the things we've talked about for years. And I guess we, we're all slightly guilty of not taking this into the public domain enough. Um, FICM, which is the Faculty of Intensive Care Medicine, which largely looks after adults who are critically unwell if, and the people who look after them, have done really good work on kind of end of life issues in adult intensive care. And, we, you know, we really need to start thinking about doing that in the children's arena as well, maybe having that open debate, which might include the resources. But part of it, I mean, the, the LTV group we're putting together and we're working on Thinking about the burdens on the family at home of some of these technologies, I, you know, speaking to families who've taken on the challenge of home parental nutrition, um, home renal replacement therapy, the difference between individuals, I mean, some families just fly and have got great support mechanisms. Other families have really struggled. And I guess we, we're not good at differentiating and predicting and supporting, I think, bespokely, if that makes sense. There's kind of a, you know, we're going to start parental nutrition and there's this much support available, off you go. And for some families, that might be more than enough. For some families, not enough. And I know there are lots of people in community trying to work very hard to try and improve things. But when you talk to families, it's a different story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the joys, I think, of my job is that whilst I'm based in a, a fabulous hospital in London, I have the privilege of going out and visiting patients in the community yeah. and I see the reality of their worlds. And and what we can provide in a hospital setting is not the same as what you can provide in your own home. And, and those you know, your home situation has a direct impact on how any parent will cope with the sort of the medical burdens of treatment that we ask some of them to, to to do or to support with their children and you know every family is different and it you know the support network what your physical home environment looks like whether you're in employment or not in employment and and how you have supportive childcare kind of backup all of those things have a massive impact on on what we ask of of families and not just the parents the siblings who I think often um, their voices are, are slightly lost and and grandparents aunts and uncles it's the extended yeah. family who yeah. this affects absolutely everybody and and I think one of our roles definitely going forward not just within palliative care but as you said within PICU um, and across the board is preparing families better for for yeah. what they are signing up to and and I think in the majority of situations, most families will say that they 
want to do as much as possible to keep their children alive as long as possible and comfortable and pain-free and suffering-free. But they need to be aware of what it is, what that's going to look like and the reality for them. And I suspect that historically we haven't been so good at at preparing families. I think we're much more aware of that now, but I definitely think that there needs to be a, a bigger conversation and for people in general society to understand a little bit more about yeah. the burdens on these families. Yeah, I, I think that's perfect. I think that that, that more broad conversation um, out there, as Fickham have done, would be really useful in terms of the real world stuff. And it, it's interesting when you talk to most general practitioners that most of them have got a child who's at home on a ventilator and, and officially under their care. And, and you know, they go, uh, uh, you know, they don't have a lot of information given to them by our hospitals, our teams. And it's one of those things that is very, very varied in terms of nurse support, other packages, but ultimately who they're going to call when the child gets unwell. Often it might be the GP or it might be the nurse with the practice and, and they're handling vaccinations and all this kind of thing. And I think that the joined upness, which is tor- a terrible word I've just made up, <laughs> but the joined upness for, for these children, putting our arms around the family and trying to make sure the care is as good as it can be with everyone involved is, is getting better. It's miles better than a couple of decades ago. You won't remember that. You're too young. But um, not sure about that. Is- <laughs> it, it is improving, but I think there's a lot more work that can and should be done. Um, in, integrating social care, I know it's one of the main governmental standards and aims is to make social care and health care talk to each other. Well, for these families, it's an absolute urgent thing, isn't it? Absolutely. But I think not only do we need to kind of put our arms around the families, but actually also around our colleagues. And I think we can forget the different systems and the different layers within the NHS and also within social care that we don't all work within the same um, format. And actually, as you say, you know, a GP practice may have one ventilated child and therefore this isn't their bread and butter. And and we need to support them in management as well and give them the, the support and the skills that they need to help to look after these children in the community because as you said they're the ones who are who are much more face-to-face and responsive than we are and and so it's really vital that we work together and that there's lots of kind of shared education and yes. joined up meetings and that's I guess one of the amazing benefits or not benefits but the silver linings to Covid <laughs> has been much more joined up work. <laughs> yeah I mean as much yeah. as we all moan about Zoom and sitting in front of computers what it is facilitated in the way of joined up working with community teams is quite incredible and meetings that take months to arrange now you can have you know within 48 hours with representation from tertiary centers from district general hospitals from community nurses from social care from general practice with families and that is outstanding and i i hope that that is something that we can maintain moving forward absolutely it's just made it so easy hasn't it and we have you know, even our ethics meetings, we have the families in the room with us and, you know, versus dragging them up to the hospital, even though they may be separate with one parent in the hospital, one at home, they can all be there in the same dialogue and conversation together with the teams thinking about challenging issues. So there are definitely silver linings, but um, I'm afraid quite a few clouds coming our way. So I, I'll maybe just have a, a couple more questions, Joe. One is, I think the broader social impact of the pandemic on children um, I, I don't think we've even begun to explore what's gone on in terms of children's mental health and well-being. That must affect children who have palliative care needs as well. I mean, that must be a tough area if you think about the support structures having ebbed away. 
Um, hopefully we'll be reintroduced soon, but the lack of face-to-face contact, you can't hold someone's hand over Zoom, et cetera. So I just wonder whether you've any thoughts about what that impact has been for children with palliative care needs and their families and and what's our best way to try and maybe not mitigate the worst effects, but but consider how we can improve that situation. I think it's difficult. I mean, I think from a personal perspective, the the cohort of children that I look after um, are children who tend to have non-malignant conditions. So um, they often are children who've got complex neurodisability and their ability to communicate with us, I guess, is much harder than our children who've got okay. cancer diagnoses. So I think I do see a slightly different population. But what, what we've de- definitely noticed is that the changes for them have also been significant, not being able to access special needs schools, um, not being able to have all the therapy support that they would have historically had. And again, that burden of care shifting much more to parents and to to whoever's within the support bubble at home. Um, And and really interestingly, we've also, I think, in the last couple of months, seen a, a change in children's medical conditions because they have not been being transported to school they may not have spent as much time in standing frames so actually we've seen a change in a lot of the children we look after as respiratory status their general fitness their general underlying health um, status has deteriorated and and I'm convinced that that is partly because they've all had a slightly more sedentary lifestyle from a, a a a child who is able to communicate more and as I said that's probably looking more at some of my colleagues who work with children who have oncological diagnoses again I mean I can't really begin to imagine how difficult it must have been to be as isolated as they have the restrictions on visiting not only in the hospital environment but at home and the fear of of COVID and what it might bring to you and the unknown um, and the, the kind of the fact that it's still it still feels like an unknown. We don't really know when we're all going to come out of this and when society will fully reopen. And I I was talking to somebody about this yesterday, that that whilst all of us talk about how excited we are about everything reopening, I think everybody is nervous, even those who don't have underlying health needs. But if you have underlying health needs that are potentially life-limiting or life-threatening, that's all amplified. And and the, the, the immense dilemmas of if you are on limited time, having all of your freedoms taken away from you is, is again, it's an absolutely huge thing to face. So I, I think it's enormous, absolutely enormous. And I, I know when I speak to my colleagues in psychiatry that their workload yeah. has, has multiplied massively um, and we're only just beginning to see the tip of the iceberg, I'm sure. Absolutely. And the mental health stuff has been very, very well highlighted, but needs to be too. So provision of services has not been good for some time and then there's this i mean the term tsunami is used probably a little bit too much but in this way it isn't um exaggerating the mental health tsunami coming our way in children is is going to real need real support and real investment so hopefully that will come yeah i guess yeah (laughs) it's incredibly tough so um maybe just pushing you back uh forgetting things to do with pandemics which would be nice wouldn't it for a small period of time um there's been lots of discussion about end of life standards and palliative care's role in in thinking about end of life issues. I guess the ethical issue we we can't not talk about the stuff that gets spoken about in adult practice all the time. Um, 
and I guess as children get older, this becomes a more um, a realistic topic to talk about. And that's the idea of um, advanced care plans being honoured with children's decision making. As you know, the state of Victoria have their Victoria's Medical Treatment Planning and Decisions Act 2016, which allows children with life-limiting conditions to have a right to author advanced directives and have them honoured, basically. Um, we don't have anything like that. There's um, thoughts about whether that might be something that might be considered England and Wales. But I guess more broadly, your thoughts about those those um, thorny uh, phrases or, or words, euthanasia and assisted dying. What are your thoughts on those things and, and where they where they may or may not be relevant in child health? I mean, I think... If I'm honest, I'm very torn. I I worry that as a society we are incredibly paternalistic and actually I just have to look at my own children to know that they are so much more worldly, so much more aware than I ever would have been at their age. They are exposed to things yeah. through the internet, through their education. I think we are a much more a generally a much more open society than we would have been 20 or 30 years ago. And so children in some respects grow up much quicker um having said that um i i guess having any clear-cut rules and regulations come with risks of children being overly influenced and not being able to make decisions without um you know being coerced in some way and i guess it's trying to find that middle ground i i remember years ago hearing an interview um by a palliative care physician about physician assisted death and and euthanasia and basically they they said that if you supported it it was because or, or people who wanted it were not getting good enough palliative care and i actually i i really disagree with that i think that there will always be people out there who simply don't want a a prolonged palliated end of life phase and and of course it very much depends on what the clinical situation is but I I think um, uh, to me that's not correct I I hope that as a palliative care doctor I can try and get on top of my patient symptoms as much as possible and give them the best possible quality of life but I also concede that there will be some people for whom actually that life is one of suffering whether that's my perception of suffering or theirs is very difficult, you know, but but from their perspective. And actually, I think it's really important to be able to offer people, sorry, the door's shutting in the background. Um, I think it's really important to be able to offer people um, choices in in how they want their end of life to be supported. And I don't see why a arbitrary number like the age of 18 should be the deciding factor as to when you can make those decisions. And there are 25-year-olds, 50-year-olds out there who I would question their decision-making abilities. And there are 14 and 15-year-olds who are incredibly clear in their mind and have lived through incredible experiences. And and I feel that we should be able to listen to them and support them in their decision-making. Um, so I, I feel quite mixed about it, if I'm honest. Yeah, no, I, that's a really... Do you know what, Joe? You're one of the few people I would agree with entirely on that. I, I have very mixed emotions and even my rational side of my brain when it gets turned on would still struggle with this. Um, the points you make are very, very, very wise, very sentient that, you know, we want to support children in their decision-making. Who knows more about what it's like to be a child with an end-of-life condition than a child who's got an end-of-life condition? And it's um, that augmented decision-making capacity is a very important thing to consider. I've got some sympathy for the advanced directive type stuff, but I I suspect these things are best done without conflict and in a family and child-centered way with everyone working together. 
But the only reason this sort of thing exists is when things aren't working well and whether we respect the child's rights. If if parents are insisting on interventions, that's the kind of tough thing, isn't it? Yeah, and I think one of the things that I've have struggled with in the, in the last few years is sometimes we've had situations where families have not wanted to disclose things to teenagers. They've wanted Absolutely. to make decisions on their behalf. And, and again, it's something, and I've seen healthcare professionals collude with that. And that worries me because, as I said, I think it's so important that that we get this right for for young people, that they have their own voice heard. And in some of those situations, they don't want to be the ones to make decisions. And and that's their right as well. But actually, when they do want to make decisions, we need to be able to support them and to make sure that they're not being coerced, that they are making those with all the information, having you know true informed consent to make decisions themselves. I think it's really vital. It's it's fascinating that you know the how well enshrined in English and Welsh law at least is the children's right to receive information. It's um it's probably not as good as it ought to be. Um, that's a subject for another podcast, I'm sure. But um certainly if children are going to be allowed to consent to treatments so over sixteen, they have the right to do so. Um, below sixteen, if they prove prove themselves to be good at competent, they should be able to consent to treatments then they need the information to do so whatever that is so i i struggle as you've said when people don't provide children with information often with this kind of um vision of protecting the child from something that might upset them and that might be the case that might well be the case but it's um the child has a right to know but it's how well enshrined in law it's probably much better in clinical practice than uh, it is legally if that makes sense oops that's probably a million people wanting you to go and do something for them joe is it uh no but i do have the school run to do so yeah <laughs> that's, that's the important one isn't it, it is. okay brilliant so i guess just joe that's been really interesting thank you so much for your time i'm going to leave you with one one final thought um can you future scan for us ethical issues you think will be coming in children's palliative care in the next i don't know decade or so um i think it goes back to what i was saying i think it's going to be the use of tpn i think it's going to be ventilation and how you withdraw in the community um i think those are going to be the key things i think we'd agree that the um decisions about life-sustaining treatment and and various thoughts about that and the children that you know, we think about providing those two are going to be the biggest issues. Joe, I realise you've stayed late. Thank you so, so sorry, much. Sorry, Joe. That's been really interesting. We'll see Cheers. You next time. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you want to get in touch, you can do so via social media. You can find Gosh Learning Academy on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We also have lots of exciting new podcasts coming soon. To find out more, search Gosh Pods wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>